Champagne Sharks. So there's a movie coming out called Tasmanian Devil. It looks pretty interesting. We saw the trailer over at YouTube. We showed it on YouTube, but if you go on YouTube and search Tasmanian Devil, you'll find it. It's pretty interesting. And this is how it's described by the studio. Uh, it's available now on digital and on demand. From executive producers Birdman and Benny Boom comes Tasmanian Devil, the timely coming-of-age tale starring Abraham Attar. Don't miss the gripping story about Nigerian immigrant Deo and his struggle to find a moral balance between his desire to join a college fraternity and bonding with his estranged father, who is a strict pastor at a local church. Own Tasmanian Devil now on digital and on demand. So yeah, what we're going to do is we have five free digital copies to give out to different listeners and what we're going to do to figure out who to give it to is follow us on youtube.com forward slash champagne sharks or at twitch.tv forward slash champagne sharks email us proof at champagne sharks at gmail.com that you've done so like do it with a screen cap or any other way you know that you can prove it and we'll enter you in a drawing and sometime next week we'll pick five names we'll announce them on the youtube channel and then we'll um deliver you the codes all right so yeah five free digital copies of a pretty cool looking movie and without further ado here's the rest of the show how's everyone doing uh we have a guest with us today uh real quick i don't remember if this is mentioned in the intro that we have recorded but we now offer annual subscriptions so you can upgrade if you're a monthly subscriber and you get a 10 percent discount so go to patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks and you'll be able to figure out how to upgrade it should be clearly laid up laid out over there and without further ado we have our guest today samantha pritchard you could find her on twitter at to sit please but i'll let i'll let her introduce herself and where to find her and what she's about hey thanks yeah so i'm hopefully going to be launching a Substack in the in the near future but in the meantime uh you can find me on twitter or twitch uh at fusida please t-h-u-c-y-d-i please which was just a totally thoughtless handle I came up with years and years ago, but it has since stuck. Um, but you can also just look for Samantha Pritchard and you'll find me. So uh, I definitely would love to have more people follow me on Twitch because I'm trying to do more analytical content on there. I'm still figuring out, but I want to do some writing, interviews, debates, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I didn't even know you were on Twitch. How long have you been on there? Just a little while, like maybe a month, but I haven't been streaming that regularly yet. I'm still still kind of trying to figure out what I want to do with the platform. Gotcha, uh, gotcha. But you've already started? But, you know, yeah, I've already started a little bit. Okay. What kind of topics have you uh, covered so far? Mostly just topics of the day. I mean, I've just been live streaming games for now, and I just, you know, talk about whatever folks from Twitter want to talk about. Um, but I'm trying to organize some debates and interviews and stuff. I got a turf to agree to debate me on Twitch oh, wow. just now. Uh, explain what a turf is. Out but... Like a coward. <laughs> explain what a turf is, by the way, because we try to act like, you know, this is everybody's first time hearing something, you know, so. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, uh, technically it stands for trans exclusionary radical feminist, uh, but it's just kind of become a byword for someone who's like anti-trans people. Um, this guy in particular was on the like left Marxist feminist wing of transphobes and arguing that, you know, trans people are misogynistic and, and homophobic for transitioning and gender identity is misogynistic and trans uh, homophobic and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, anyway, uh, 
I was just arguing with him on Twitter and briefly convinced him to debate me on Twitch, but then he backed out, of claiming that, you know, it's too dangerous. It's too dangerous to disagree with a trans person online, you know. Oh, because of uh, p- political correctness and cancel culture and I guess all that usual. Yes, yeah. yes. The big, powerful trans lobby would, would come down on him uh, too, too powerfully. So he just has to stick to calling people a man on Twitter. Got it. Got so, it. You know, uh, not yeah. shocking, but. You know, you know. Um, um, I didn't realize until you got into this um, debate with Lee Fong uh, on Twitter, which was pretty interesting because he's been kind of on one for a while. I don't know. Uh, him and Zaid Jelani, uh, both at The Intercept, have been gradually going like full reactionary. I don't know if they identify as leftists or what, but they've definitely been, to the extent that there is a reactionary left, they've been, if they identify as left, they've been you know, part of the main movers that at least in the media space. And there was an interesting, uh, argument you had with him uh, where I think uh, it was really one-sided. I feel like calling it an argument gives like too much credit to uh, his side of it, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was not a lot of serious engagement. Yeah, yeah, but it was basically, it was basically about the idea of, and this is something that I see espoused by uh, even far less toxic uh, people on the left, even uh, black leftists who I normally think of as, you know, pretty cool or savvy people, and that's the idea that um cap racism was you know a byproduct of the invention of capitalism that it was something that was invented or, or came about to serve the needs of capitalism like almost like it was consciously planned as in hey for this capitalism we need something to help to help keep it going hey i got an idea let's be racist you know it's some people yeah, yeah. describe like it like a psyop yeah exactly like, like- <laughs> um yeah exactly and i mean and i get it and it is, it's a simplistic, reductive, and ultimately inaccurate kind of meme on the left. But to be charitable for a moment before I uh, dig into what's wrong, um, it is at least closer to accurate than like I think the reflexive mainstream Western perception, which is just assuming that like people have always been racist forever and that like modern racial categories kind of can be applied anachronistically to the past, you know, that like you can you can take modern ideas of black or white or Asian and and project them thousands of years ago or that all people have always been racist and if we didn't do it to them, they would have done it to us, right? It's all very self-justifying. So the reductive leftist idea that some people have that racism is a product of capitalism, at least that's a step forward away from, you know, total presentist bias and assuming the past, the, the way things are is the way they've always been. But it's still inaccurate because racism does precede capitalism. It, it didn't exist forever. That's not true either. But white supremacy developed out of a tradition of, of race thinking that begins well before capitalism. Yeah. And, you know, I do agree with that in terms of that there is an interplay between capitalism, racism. So at least that theory acknowledges the interplay, even if it ends up making a very glib, reductive uh, version of it that you know confuses all types of correlations and causations and becomes its own kind of mess it's at least a mess that's closer in the right direction than the idea of racism is just this vacuum that that uh gets examined apart from all other systems so yeah right i do agree with you i do agree with you there but i think what ends up happening is this pollyanna-ish idea that by that logic like i'll take it one step further even if it was true like say that they managed to prove this is the thing the double problem with, with that attitude is first i don't think it's uh true that's a little too glib and and um facile but the other thing is 
even if that was true, like let's take it at face value and say, yes, racism came about by this. It was centrally planned by this uh, evil capitalist <laughs> cabal to uh, help their capitalism project go easier. And, you know, and they say things like, oh, they needed cheap labor. This is what I've heard the full theory as. Oh, they needed cheap labor, you know, in the form of slavery and whatever. And you have to dehumanize people to be able to enslave them or people will react against it. So they had to create, you know, the myth of the black person as inhuman. So then they could have free reign to, um, you know, exploit, abuse black people capitalistically, right? The next step they say is, and I think there's a name for this fallacy of where you assume that the reverse will happen, where the idea is, so then if you get rid of capitalism, slavery automatically uh, evaporates. And my problem with that is there's a lot of rituals and habits and customs and, you know, cultural institutions where the original need for it has long gone away. And we still have nostalgic, strong cultural, emotional attachments to these things. Like, for example, uh, the example I've used in the past is like a wedding ceremony. Everything in the wedding ceremony is made for the age of, you know, bandits and dowries and all this stuff. The idea right. of a best man, you know, you have him there and he's on the, he's on the side opposite of your sword arm because uh, of roving bandits and robber parties would, you know, come and try to um, rob the wedding party or sometimes even try to steal steal the bride. There, there was all these weird things. The whole right. wedding, the whole wedding party traveled together because they needed protection because they're going through like some woods where some brigands and some robbers might you know none of that stuff exists today nobody's gonna right uh storm your um wedding ceremony and steal your wife or <laughs> rob the things but if you told people hey let's let's do away with all these outdated customs people go crazy like no i want my best man i've dreamed of a maid of honor and that's kind of what i think is the other simplistic thing is this idea if capitalism was gone this is part of america's national cherished being racist is like for some people part of their birthright it's part of their inherited custom they're not going to give it up that easily even without the capitalism they don't even remember why it absolutely started. is no it absolutely is i mean traditions and cultural practices have an amazing staying power a lot of the time well beyond the material conditions that produce them right i mean look at the birth monarchy <laughs> right like um it's incredible the extent to which the british monarchy is still a thing that like is so revered and whose symbolic value is so important to so many tens of millions of people um despite the material conditions being completely different from it, not only its origins but even you know at any point when it had real political power um it's 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 a, a vestige but its symbolic importance has if anything increased the the pomp the ceremony you know there's actually there's a great book called invented tradition edited by eric hobsbawm the marxist historian that goes into the history of all these ceremonies associated with the royal family that are sort of interpreted as by the public being ancient and part of a long continuity of like a stable political legacy. And they were all invented in the like late 19th century as the political power of the monarchy was declining. Um, before that, there was way less ceremony and pomp and everything. But as their political power decreased, their symbolic importance increased. So this goes to the idea of even as material conditions change dramatically, institutions and practices can be adapted and can find new ways of applying. It doesn't guarantee that they just wither and disappear. If that were true, there would be no queen. Yeah. 
that's a great point. But something else that you added to that point that I think is better than the point I made is they don't even have to be that old. Like some things are very recent and people are still super attached to them like they're old. Uh, when you brought up the Adventure Tradition by Hobbsbaum, it made me remember as well um, the wedding ring. Like people bring up that wedding rings were the engagement ring with the um, diamond uh, as right. necessary stone was a very, very, very recent um, invention by, by I think, 20th century marketers. And if you try to get rid of that right now, people would uh, flip out. It's that much a part of the um, cultural, it's so culturally r- romanticized. And I thought it was something that was hundreds of years old until I realized, uh, until I read up about it. So yeah. So imagine if it actually is hundreds of years old, the way um, race and white supremacy is ingrained in this country. Look how old the nation state is. I mean, (laughs) there's any number of institutions, right, or cultural practices or ideologies that we can look at as persisting across a dramatic difference in the mode of production. Mm -hmm. And and even within a mode of production, the, the material conditions of a particular time and place and how they change and how institutions and practices persist. So yeah, I think it's really naive to think that just, oh, once we deal with capitalism, everything else bad will go away. Because I think there's also just a fundamental error being made in, well, how does it go away? And like, how is capitalism defeated? I, I, I get the sense that a lot of people on the left kind of have an almost millenarian apocalyptic idea of things. Like if we can just get to revolution, then like everything else is just, it just rolls downhill from there. It's all predetermined. Everything good will happen. Um, okay. Not like that it's an ongoing struggle, right? Can, like, can you explain what millenarian uh, apocalyptic means? So millenarian, um, like millennium, are millenarian beliefs are beliefs in an imminent destruction of the existing order and a spiritual renewal, right? Usually supernatural in origin. Like um, the one that springs to mind for me is the Kosa cattle killing in South Africa. Um, when they were being, the the indigenous Kosa people were being infringed upon and losing the war to the British, there developed a kind of cult around these two girls who eventually asserted that, you know, like if, if, they, if they were willing to sacrifice all of their cattle, which was the main store of material wealth um, for those people at the time, that the ancestors would return, rise up, kill all white people, push them into the sea and restore all of the land to the Kosa. And people actually did this, right? And of course, nothing happened. Um, so that's an example of a millenarian sort of cult belief. Got it. And I think a lot of leftists in the West, because we have such a poor connection to traditions of actually existing socialist struggle, people do in Asia and Latin America and Africa and Europe, we have a really poor sense of like what revolution means, what it looks like, what class struggle looks like. I get the sense from a lot of people that they think there's kind of a finish line. And if you can just get there, then like everything else takes care of itself. And that's not how it works. You know, like, what does it even mean to defeat capitalism or to overthrow capitalism and then racism will follow? Like, what does that look like? Think in practical terms, you know? And I feel like people kind of leave that out. It reminds me of that South Park episode where it was some kind of gnomes. I haven't seen it in a long time, but... Yeah. Step one, get underwear. Step two, question mark. Step three, profit. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what they were called. Thank you. I forgot. The underwear gnomes. Yeah, yeah. And I think kind of same way. Like step one, get rid of capitalism. Step two, question mark. Phase three, uh, racism gone. And you know, <laughs> don't really worry about the question mark that much. It'll be it'll be fine. Right. Exactly. And I mean, obviously, I think socialism is just just as 
racism was, I think, a necessary material precondition to the rise of capitalism. I do think socialism is a necessary material precondition to the obliteration of racism. But also similarly, racism has to be weakened substantially in order to defeat capitalism. Like it really, you know, there's this sort of meme on the reactionary left where they make fun of people for saying both and, you know, as opposed to either or. Like, but the reality is it is both. You do have to work against racism and capitalism in tandem. Caste and class reinforce each other. And there's this perception that caste, like race, is not material. It's just an ideological justification thrown on top of capitalism to persuade and, you know, bamboozle uh, ignorant, but ultimately morally innocent and naive working class whites who, as soon as their eyes are, will be opened to the correctness of socialism. They'll, of course, immediately abandon all of their racist ideology because it's not their fault. And they only believed it because they were being told to believe it. Um, yeah, it takes away all their they'll, agency. They'll have, yeah, like they'll have no trouble discharging it. It'll just instantly happen. Yeah, yeah, which again uh, gives too much credit to rationality, which I think is a very Western uh, trait in general to kind of think that you can rationalize your way into and out of anything. And sometimes uh, beliefs are just stubborn and irrational. Like, even in the face of the unraveling of the underlying logic, uh, beliefs, habits, rituals can can persist. But you, you brought up something else that's very good, which is the lack of agency like these people assign to these working class whites. So Something else implicit in it to me, which really kind of annoys me, is this idea that it's the non-white identitarians who are the stumbling block to cross-racial unity across the proletariat as if, and these aren't always the same people, but sometimes they overlap with, with the people you're talking about. A lot of times they do, uh, with this idea that there is just a big, huge mass of working class whites traditionally just chomping at the bit to uh, have cross-racial proletariat solidarity, but it's these whole holdouts, you know, this 30% of the population that's insisting on believing in identity that is uh, the stumbling block. So there's no lecturing right. to be done of working class whites. All they have to do is just, you know, stay the same and, you know, be told about the benefits of socialism. But when it comes to actual racial re-education, that's only reserved for uh, the working class non- non-whites. And they need and to get I, rid of identity I, politics. And the, it exposes, I think, what these people are really about because... They say this, right? They say, you're the problem because you keep talking about identity and you want these people to be woke and they're not going to be woke. And, you know, we just need to be class first and and we can have a multiracial working class coalition if you would just stop being so fucking woke and stop trying to make these people be woke. Um, You know, just talk about class. But what do these people do? They never fucking talk about class. All they talk about is wokeness and how much they hate it. Like, who's creating the division here, right? Like, all they fucking talk about is how we need to fight wokeness and identity, like they are participating in the culture war and identity and id poll and everything they claim to hate just as much as the people they position themselves against, if not more. It's their sole concern. Like these people never fucking talk about class politics on its on its own. It's and, always about how to make it anti-woke. Yeah, and how to um, justify slurs. And so, something else too is that they have this, and you've talked about this, and I'll let you explain it because I will butcher it if I try to paraphrase. I thought you did it much better than I did. Uh, where you talk about how 
how even their conception of class, they reduce class to culture war, it Paul stuff. They make class an identity. They didn't argue class the way one argues any other identity in the type of uh, superficial identity politics discourse that um, that they that they criticize. Like they're not even able to think of class in a material Marxist way. It just becomes what you wear, uh, how you talk, um, you know, stand up comedy, or whatever cultural signifiers. Yeah, and consumption, which consumption, of course is yep. the that, for modern Americans that is the preeminent way that you identify yourself. What do you consume, and how do you consume it, and how do you justify your consumption? Right. Um, so they completely buy into this shit as much as they, you know, we have this whole new class of culture warriors who they're like a third front in the culture war. You know, you have the liberals and the conservatives, and now you have the like anti-culture war culture warriors, but they're still completely embroiled in it. And they're not like, they want to project being above or distant from culture and materialist, but they're absolutely not because their entire focus is on culture and consumption. Um, They never unlearned it. They never unlearned it. It's like, it's well hold on let me back up a second address more specifically what you just said um their conception of the working class is very much about cultural identifiers social signals right um like there's this guy on twitter sean mccarthy some of you some of your listeners know him some may know who know me may know i don't like him um he's kind of like you know the reactionary left but one of the more just straight up dumb as rocks uh, individuals in that group but you know, with the Capitol riot, his, you know, immediate glib take was the Democrats ignored the rural white working class. And this is what we get. And then, of course, like afterwards, it's discovered, yes, these people are generally well off. They're older. They have businesses. They have property. A bunch of them are cops and military. And it turns out they actually mostly like a majority of them actually come from counties won by Biden. Most of them come from cities. Most of them come from big blue states. Right. Like it was not the rural working class whites who were at the Capitol trying to kill AOC, right? It was petite bourgeois reactionaries that actually, I, I saw an analysis done of... 193 people who had been identified thus far and charged. And they found that like the sort of average characteristics of the Capitol rioters were that they were personally better off, but lived in counties that were more diverse and worse off. So they were literally like the white landlord afraid of the non-white tenants rising up against him. They were not working class. They were not working class in any sense. This is the petite bourgeois tyrant who's worried that his position in the hierarchy is going to be destabilized from the bottom by workers, tenants, whoever he's exploiting, rebelling against him, and from the top by being be- squeezed out by bigger, more efficient capitalists, right? So this person is the ideal reactionary because what they long for is a return to literally the past when there was a stable class hierarchy and they were not afraid of being displaced either by the grand bourgeoisie or by the proletariat. They they had their little fiefdom. They had their little economic tyranny. They were secure and they lived a good life. Wait, wait, but uh, let me push back on that because some of them had construction boots and I didn't see any of them. <laughs> with half the side of the head shaved or purple hair. And right. So, you know, and some of them had ponchos. So I think that makes them, you know, according to what these people tell me, uh, you know, the proletariat is like, you know, like like one guy had construction boots and a construction hat. I mean, it turned out he owns a construction company. You know, right. But, 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 owning the meeting, but owning the means of production doesn't mean anything as long as you drink light beer and, you know, have the right look and voice. The thing that really kills me is the extent to which people use education as a proxy for class. 
Because it's not. It's just not, in any Marxist analysis, a proxy for class. I'm sorry. Like, someone with a high school diploma who owns a small business and steals surplus value from his employees is not working class. Someone with a degree who works a retail job because they can't find anything in their field that they wanted to go into is working class. You know, all this, all this stuff, you know, people use this term, the quote unquote professional managerial class Mm -hmm. to describe, you know, people who are educated professionals, so on and so forth. And kind of, try to carve these people off of the working class, even though they sell their labor for wages and they don't own the means of production. Um, freelance and journalists. It's bullshit. Yeah, freelance journalists. Yeah, free- uh, um, pe- people per- hate journalists so much. Yeah, it's they amazing. Hate, they hate journalists. Also, adjunct professors. Like, adjunct professors are not, like, you know, killing it in the world. You know, it's a very tough, tough existence, but they treat them. And I think part of the problem with PMC is the word professional in there. So they're kind of like, okay, you, this counts as a profession technically. So uh, so rather than working class, I think that's why they prefer PMC to the working class, or at least try to conflate them because that word professional complicates Makes you think things. of like a rich lawyer with a private practice. And it's like, no, PMC, you know, is so broadly and poorly defined and vague that like it can include school teachers and nurses and you <laughs> I mean, right? Like, yeah. it, it's just ridiculous. There's this valorization of like manual labor and things that look like the labor struggle from when America had a radical labor struggle, which was like, yeah, factories, coal mines. Interestingly, never farm work. Farm workers still exist. They still do brutal manual labor. They're still extremely exploited. Farm workers were the site of a bunch of radical labor struggle and resistance, but they're overwhelmingly non-white and somehow they never make it into the pantheon of the idealized American history of labor struggle for these people, which I think is revealing. Very much. Um, so. I mean, frankly, frankly, we're teachers too, but like that also, <laughs> like whatever. It's all coal miners, even though there's only like thirty thousand of them left. Let's all remember the Ludlow massacre. Who yeah, there? Y- yeah, and you know something. Um, and I've seen you mention this too. You've talked about how a lot of the um, podcast slash uh, dirtbag left is basically like um, Daily Show libs uh, who just you know, came to socialism, but still kind of keep the same structure and ideas, you know, and how they approach um, politics and, you know, mobilization, like everything has to be given to them in the form of uh, comedy and consumption. And, you know, the the DSA is, you know, not like super radical, like, like, like democratic socialism is a good gateway drug to socialism from, uh, for NPR tote back liberal, which is not to insult it, it's just saying that it's, it is what it is. It still has a lot of electoral politic focus and, and things like that and organizes in a way that I think is relatable to an ex-Democrat. And I feel like that same thing kind of happens with uh, these guys, these kind of class reductionist guys, is that they came to leftism from what seems to me, based on how they act, I'm convinced a lot of them came from a 4chan or reactionary space, whether they admit it or not. They have the same type of similar magical thinkings and, and belief systems, but they just at some point decided, you know what? We want free insurance and we want uh, student loan forgiveness. So we're hopping on board this uh, 
this leftism thing. And so they still have the structures and just like a lot of like, you know, podcast left fans still have some residual tendencies and habits and structures from the liberal days. I think these guys haven't really read Marx. Uh, they don't really talk about Marx. I think they just um, no. still practice. And that's why everything is culture war to them. Everything is about anti-woke SJW type discourse because that's what they were doing before, like a yeah. couple of years ago. Yeah. I completely agree. I mean, as someone who was on the worst parts of the internet in like 2006, 2005, like it's all very familiar. Um, uh, and this actually, this is this is funny because this goes back to our earlier topic of people underestimating how difficult it's going to be to get rid of embedded social practices, hierarchies, cultural traditions, ideas, right? These people literally, you can't even just get them to stop saying slurs on the internet. Like they will make literally no changes, no sacrifices. They will not analyze any of their own behaviors. Like this is not a hard request, right? Just like don't be overtly reactionary in how you talk to people. It's actually really easy. It's an incredibly easy thing to do. Not saying the R slur at everyone you disagree with, not a big ask. Yeah, they won't do it. Not they only, refuse yeah. to do it. Not only that, like, but like like petulant children, they try to force saying it more to the point that it becomes like laughable. Like there's this guy who keeps trying uh, at the block in one point because he was an annoying, but his screen name was like Norman Chud. But he just, every chance he get, you're trying to work in uh, the, R, the R slur, which, which is uh, retard, into every single thing he said. And it's like nobody, not even a normal, natural um racist or asshole just says it that much you're just trying it's so try hard that it's uh kind of pathetic yeah well it's like uh, the come town fan base and for those of your listeners who don't know you know come town is a comedy podcast that's popular on the left for whatever reason but especially like the reactionary left and a bunch of people who are just reactionaries and apolitical um they don't say this so much anymore but I remember a few years ago, like the meme that they would always say when you would like get into an argument with any one of them, whether you realized what was happening or not, who you were talking to, they would say, you know, say the N word two times, although they wouldn't say N word, right? They would, they would say the word um, like they, they're really invested in like not only making a point of saying it, but like literally trying to like goad or entice you into saying it too. It's like, I want you to become, and they would, and they'll, and they'll always say like, have you ever said it? Have you ever said it? Like that's some amazing and gotcha, right? Yeah. And it's like, they're literally trying to recruit you into it in a really facile and childish way. But like, it demonstrates the extent to which these people place so much importance on something so stupid. Um, and that's pure culture war nonsense. And it's, a lot of it's literally too. just like begging, please validate my adolescent online habits. Please validate me. Yeah, for sure. It's a lot of his projection, too, because they feel like the freedom to say slurs is such an important reason or motivating force behind their beliefs that um, goading you to say is going to activate that same release in you. Like, uh, because I want to say it's so bad and I'm into this due to a dream of one day, you know, being able to say this without consequence, you must be the same way. You must be deep down dying to say it too. And if you realize oh. what we're what we're pushing for is we're fighting for that same freedom you want, you know, the freedom to say slurs, you'll join us. And that's uh, you know, which I think is very much a, a project a projective act. But says a lot about them. I don't think it's even projection. I mean, yeah, it is, but it's like it's more severe than that. It's 
it's just like incredible solipsism, right? Like these people confuse their subjective experience with objective reality, that mm. there is nothing outside the self, their self. What I think is obviously what everybody else thinks, because how could anybody disagree? Like they literally can't conceive of like a different mind that would work differently and arrive at a different conclusion that other people might know things that they don't or not know things that they do. That's why they um, always act like you don't they, get it they, if you disagree with them, because they can't imagine somebody getting their point, but still um, saying no, that's wrong. You know, so I, I noticed that too. They, they get stuck on the idea. They that literally you're not la- getting the they, point. Li- like they lack theory of mind. You know, like as a toddler, you're supposed to learn that, like, just because you know something doesn't mean somebody else knows it. Just because you think something doesn't mean somebody else thinks it. Like that's when we start to learn how to lie because we realize, like, oh, we don't all share the same brain. These people have never gotten to that point. They've never figured out that like we don't all share the same brain. They think everybody thinks the same way as they do and all disagreement is therefore dishonesty and motivated by some kind of cynical self-interest because that's the only explanation for why anyone would disagree with them. Um, and I don't know. I feel like solipsism is kind of the, the curse of our age in America. Yeah. It's just like, it's so rampant. Um, and it, it runs the, so the, close the, and hand to hand with narcissism. Like, you know, they, they, yeah. if there's a Venn diagram, they're not exactly the same thing, but they overlap a lot on narcissism and solipsism. They definitely go together. Solipsism is, is like a smaller circle inside of narcissism, for sure. Um, but it just, it, yeah, it, dri- it drives me nuts. Like, I think... The constant insistence that everyone who disagrees with you is a liar. It's not just the reactionary left that does that. I mean, you see that everywhere. The obsession with hypocrisy and dishonesty. Um, I think in general is really overblown. I think most of the time people are sincere and honest. They just might be sincerely and honestly wrong or evil or like bigoted. It's not or, 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 or woke, like whatever it is that you don't like. The truth is most of the people who think that thing are sincere they're not lying. They just are different. And like, that's not an excuse that may may be intolerable depending on what their beliefs are, but it's not hypocrisy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to be, to be clear, we've been spending time talking about, um, you know, the flaws of if, even if their premise was true, that racism, um, uh, only was created as an outgrowth of, of capitalism, you know, how even if that was true, it's still flawed logic to believe that underwear gnomes theory of hey, just get rid of capitalism. Something happens, um, bada bing, bada boom, and your suddenly racism is gone. But I think even more importantly, the premise is wrong, too. Not only the conclusion that stems from the premise, but uh, the original premise, which is where I think Cedric Robinson uh, comes in, as well as the other books you referenced, which I don't know what they are yet, but I know you referenced before that you had some other... um, books you wanted to talk about as well definitely got a bunch of recommendations for sure but yeah like let me read you literally the opening uh sentence of black marxism by cedric robinson um you know because earlier before we started recording you know you asked me if if you felt it was a fair characterization of his argument and yes definitely so the book opens the historical development of world capitalism was influenced in a most fundamental way by the particularistic forces of racism and nationalism This could only be true if the social, psychological, and cultural origins of racism and nationalism both anticipated capitalism in time and formed a peace with those events that contributed directly to its organization of production and exchange. Feudal society is the key. So Black Marxism, the first third of the book, 
really essentially is about making that case, elaborating on that case, how racism anticipated capitalism and in fact was of a piece with the events that contributed to that change in the mode of production, right? Um, And I think that is just objectively historically correct. You know, Robinson starts by talking about, he. I mean, he goes as far back as the Slavs and uh, Christian Western Europe getting its supply of slaves from pagan Slavs, um, especially after slavery was officially banned by the church uh, of enslaving Christians. Um, and he details, I mean, this this is very old, you know, we're talking seven, eight, nine hundred AD. So the sourcing is a little bit scarcer there, but he's, he puts his timeline at the beginning of race thinking as going back that far and then exploding with the Crusades, the confrontation with Islam, anti-Semitism. And then there's other further developments as well. Uh, but, and you know, I think you can disagree on the particulars, but I think the overall contours is definitely correct. Racism, race thinking is, is the term he uses, which I think is important because it's what you're talking about is the idea of something different from class. Race is a form of caste. It's heritable and the individual cannot discharge it. They cannot change their caste location. Class mobility may be rare in capitalism, but it is possible, right? Class, your class position is determined exclusively by your position in the relations of production, right? It's entirely dependent on the real world material context of your life and what you own or don't own. Caste is biological, it's idealist. It's like spiritual almost, right? Or actually it is spiritual in the case of like Hindu caste systems. And you can't move between castes. You can't be like white and then become black. You, you know, Rachel Dolezal notwithstanding. The whole point is it's supposed to be something you can't get away from because it's carried in your blood. You can't discharge it. And and that leads me to what I, I want to mention is the Edict of Pure Blood in Toledo in 1447, So this was after the Reconquista had happened in Spain and the Christian kingdoms had retaken Toledo for a while now. But, and there'd been Spanish Inquisition. So you have all these people now, you know, there's all the Jews and Muslims that are still there. Well, there aren't any, right? It's they or their descendants are conversos or moriscos. These are people who converted to Catholicism from Judaism or Islam or their descendants. Those are the people left. But because those were the people who built <laughs> Muslim Spain and built Toledo and had connections all over the Mediterranean world and like had done all of it, they still had most of the institutional power and they had, you know, the property. And this pissed people off, the Christians who had come to recolonize the Iberian Peninsula and take it away from, you know, the infidels. They were so bad. They were like, well, what was the point of all of this conquest and inquisition and persecution if we didn't get all their shit? So this led to a bunch of riots, race riots, essentially. um, And eventually the Edict of Pure Blood, which stated that conversos and moriscos were still, they still had tainted blood, even if they were Christians, even if their Christian belief was utterly sincere, it was now irrelevant. And this sanctioned the theft of their property and their banning from political office, right? This was used to deprive them of property, liberty, and political influence. And that's the first real explicit legal codification of racism in Europe. Now, that's not the beginning of racism in Europe, but it points to 
the first time it's really put in the letter of the law. And this is 1447. I don't think anyone is saying that Europe was already capitalist by then. Spain was Spain was not capitalist in 1447. You know, this is and it's before the discovery of the new world, and they're already putting into law that you have tainted blood. That's biological. That's a biological caste that lives in your body and therefore cannot be discharged, cannot be escaped. You're guilty no matter what, and your oppression can be justified regardless of the material position you're in. These people were at the top of the hierarchy. They needed a way to bring them down, and that was what they came up with. And, and you know, um, this brings us back to the um, Li Fang uh, debate because, and again, it's charitable to call it a debate, but... Um, Basically, the idea is that he was saying is something that's very uh, popular with these people. But what he said, and interesting, did he even ever respond to you? Or at some point, I don't think just, so. Okay, he probably probably has me muted by now. Anyway, I've called him an idiot so many times. Okay, I thought at one point he started responding and then just kind of petered petered out and didn't stop. But I can't remember at this point. Everything kind of uh, yeah. Blurred. I can't remember either. He might have like quote tweeted me or something, but you know, whatever. I honestly think the guy's dumb as rocks. It was probably smart not to, yeah, not to engage, expose himself more. Yeah, that's that's the thing. That it's not just that he's bad faith, but he really seems bad at it. You know, but I mean, the other thing is, does he even have to be good at it? Because when you interacted with him, and I saw all like the chuds, all the class reductionist chuds uh, coming at you, it was like you don't really have to do that good a job to get these people um, going. I mean, these are people who just rapidly hate the book Settlers without even knowing why. They just, they just, (laughs) you know, like you just say Settlers and it it sets them off. They're not very uh, critical people, but uh, he wrote, what motivates the ruling class is a routine desire for maintaining power and self-interest, but political storytellers need lurid, emotionally driven narratives. So the far left, which is kind of weird. I mean, is he basically... Uh, openly like right wing reactionary now because same thing like the far left like the languages so you know they're not they're never open about it because they're cowards but mm, yeah yeah because where's like the far left that doesn't sound like something a leftist would say so the far left invents a white supremacist elite in charge of the country just as the far right imagines a pedo um cabal which first of all mm-hmm. there is a pedophile cabal yep. <laughs> running the country like that's not a conspiracy like uh, were you not paying attention yeah the details um, were wrong but <laughs> the, right like the QAnon is incorrect but like the fact that billionaires run the country and also apparently all have access to like sex trafficking of children by cia funded people like epstein is apparently real Right. Like, so anyway, yeah. And he wrote like, this in September 2020 <laughs> when uh, Epstein was very well known. Like, he, it wasn't like he wrote I, it in yeah. 2016 or something. I, I don't know. I don't understand Lee's conclusion there. Like, yeah, yes, both are true. They are racist and pedophiles. Um, like, I don't know. Maybe that's like dramatic or too narratively neat or whatever. But like, sometimes that's how reality is. I mean, if anything, this last year should have taught us. It's that sometimes reality is really on the nose in a way that would seem implausible in fiction. Like our conception of what is realistic is often at conflict with what actually is reality. They're not the same thing, right? What we think of as pragmatic or realistic or sophisticated may in fact bump into a reality that is blunt and lurid and unsophisticated. Like, why should something be untrue just because it's lurid, right? To use the word that Lee Fang used. Like, that doesn't prove that it's not true. That can happen also. Like, there's an there's a 
an anti-materialist premise there, which is that reality has certain characteristics that we can know in advance and therefore dismiss certain ideas without evaluating the evidence because they don't fit with our framework of what reality is like. That's not materialist. That's idealist. That's not engaging with reality. That's engaging with a map of reality that you've created that obscures a lot of things or simplifies them or removes them because the map is not the terrain. Yeah, yeah, that, definitely, definitely. Um, I mean, even the rest of his uh, thing was pretty much, you know, like the motive is profit. Someone asked them, uh, Aida, Aida Chavez asked them, um, respectfully, Lee, I have a question. And it's like, why even respectfully? But uh, that's another question. Because she works at the Intercept. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Do you not think the ruling class uses white supremacy and racism precisely out of its desire to maintain power and self-interest? And he's like, I do, but the motive is profit, which is not even true because a lot of times people do things that are against their you know, profit interest just to be racist all the time. It's not even constantly. As, yeah, as rational as you want to make it seem. I mean, back in the days, it was easier to hire like um, newly freed black people or fresh out of uh, one generation out of slavery black people than to hire more expensive white workers. But a lot of times they would do it. You know, it's it, the idea that uh, profits motivate everything is is very very un, un, untrue. There are plenty of examples where people will shoot themselves in the foot to lose to lose a profit to be racist. But anyway, I do, but the motive is profit. The business interests in this country are happy to deploy cynical race slash culture war for political gain. That's why the same corporations that fund Donald Trump and uh, Representative Stephen King also fund LGBT pride parades and the Congressional Black Caucus. And it's the kind of thing that's glib, but Plausible enough, I think, to really sway someone who doesn't want to think too hard. Yeah. Um, and I mean, like, yeah, there is some truth to it, right? Like, the bourgeoisie will play both sides of the political divide. They'll play both sides of the culture war. Um, but that doesn't mean also that there aren't committed ideologues in the bourgeoisie on both sides of that, right? <laughs> I mean, like, look at also just conflicts between national bourgeoisies, right? Like if, if capital, if global capital was really so perfectly efficient and rational and self-interested and never made any mistakes and always exploited people in the most maximally efficient way, then like why the constant wars between different national bourgeoisies in like which some of them have their industrial capacity obliterated or stolen by the other national bourgeoisie that wins, right? Like global capital is actually surprisingly uncoordinated a lot of the time, Um they often are irrational and butt heads because they're also competing amongst and within their own class, right? They do have class solidarity more so than working people, unfortunately, but they're also competitors because that's the nature of capital. That's the nature of capitalism, constant competition and a falling rate of profit that means that competition gets more and more bitter as you go because there's less and less profits be easily extracted. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, like, are the Koch brothers racist? Is Was Sheldon Adelson racist? Like, yeah, duh. Like, this idea that, like, no rich person is actually racist. Like, that's the thing. Like, this, again, goes back to the weird valorization of, like, this image of the dumb brute white worker that, like, they supposedly love and lionize, but they also treat them like a fucking idiot. Um, they have, like... Lee Fang is explicitly positioning racism as something that only working people have and that all rich people are actually not racist. They're woke 
because that's more profitable. And, and therefore, through this transformation, racism now becomes like a venerable trait of the working class, resisting you know, or existing in opposition to the internal mentality of the elite who are tolerant and yeah. cosmopolitan. Yeah, but even their racism, like, like the the um, working class whites sincerely hold racism where the uh, upper class whites uh, insincerely uh, hold it. They just cynically deploy it, you know, um, for reasons of, of profit. So on top of that, even though the um, working class whites are posited as um, sincerely racist and racism gets, you know, kind of shown as some kind of um, insurrectionary value or whatever it there's it's still taking away their agency like like uh their racism yeah. can't be condemned so much because they were propagandized and brainwashed by the powerful um into it so one group is racist but it's not their fault then the other person is at fault but is not actually racist and it just kind of um, they're secretly woke they're secretly yeah, woke. yeah yeah, yeah. And, and you know what's funny the logic could go the other way if they wanted. If if they're doing everything out of profit, then why are they secretly woke but insincerely racist? Why can't they be sincerely racist and insincerely woke for profit? Somehow that, that, that apparently is not is never the case. When yeah. Amazon puts out an ad that says Black Lives Matter, oh, that's real. That's how they really feel. That's that's def- I'm a very cynical and savvy political observer, and I believe every. Black Lives Matter Instagram ad that a large corporation shows me. Like, that's how those people behave, right? Yeah. Like, I, I don't understand how they reconcile their, like, cynicism and their pose of I see through it all, and then they take corporate PR at face value whenever it is, like, woke, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but whenever they're doing something that's, like, uh, racist, then, oh, that's that's uh, just uh, cynical things to uh, trick the white working class. And, you know, it's kind of funny, too. This is another thing that makes no sense about them. They keep talking about how um, not only is identity politics bad for bad for class politics, they say that it's not actually useful for the actual identities reports to help, that it keeps uh, black people, Hispanic people, gay people, whoever, mired in lack of progress, that it's almost like a psyop uh, that's going to, you know, ruin what these people say that they want. So uh, in, in addition to being bad for socialists, they claim, and what the white working class, they claim it's also bad for um, the people it's purporting to represent, that it uh, hurts everybody, keeps everyone divided. So if that is true, then why can't both of them be evidence that they're really racist? Because basically you're saying, oh, they're not really racist. They're actually woke. But by your definition, all that stuff is um, a psyop and made to destroy the progress of black people anyway. So maybe the wokeness and the um, um, uh, traditionally racist stuff. Yeah, the cultural reaction are both cynically deployed, right? Yeah, yeah, both cynically deployed in the direction of anti-blackness, anti uh, gayness, anti uh, transphobia, and and whatever. Because according to you yourself, the wokeness is um, and and, a psyop. and and we do see that, right? Like, yes, the bourgeoisie can co-opt like language and ideology from anti-caste struggles, anti-racism, you know, um, feminism, whatever. But you don't abandon something that's true just because your enemy has found a way to dishonestly leverage it for their rhetoric, right? I mean, they do it with class too. The blue collar billionaire, Donald Trump, right? Tucker Carlson, multimillionaire heir 
to a corporate fortune pretending like he cares about the working class. Do you abandon class politics just because these people dishonestly use it? Well, well, the problem is these people themselves, a lot of them fall for it. Like, you know, when they they cheer when Angela Nagel goes on uh, Tucker Carlson or or Angela Nagel herself going on Tucker Carlson. So that's part of the problem is they themselves fall for that cynical deployment of class, even though they mock um, black people for falling for the... uh, and and it's a true complaint that for, for the bourgeois black identity politic persons uh, weaponizing of class. I mean, of, of race. They do it with a lot of times with people uh, themselves. Yeah, no, it's true. You almost can't blame them for not applying the same standard because they fall for the co-optation of class every time. They're so dumb. They're so gullible. It's just pathetic. It really, <clears throat> oh, it, it it drives me fucking nuts. <laughs> I mean, sure. Um, you know, so. To circle back a little bit in terms of, I do think you have kind of a woke bourgeoisie and a racist bourgeoisie, like not just a sincere ideological divide, although that exists, but you have like actual material contradictions embedded in capitalism, right? Like, you know what, let's just go to the manifesto for a second, because I feel like, (laughs) I feel like a lot of people read this part of the communist manifesto and took away the wrong lesson from it. Um, you know, there's the famous section where Marx talks about all that is solid melting into the air, right? So is it all right if I just read that paragraph of real course. quick? Go ahead. So in the manifesto, they write, the bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionizing the instruments of production and thereby the relations of production and with them, the whole relations of society, right? So so capital, the bourgeoisie, they're constantly revolutionary, revolutionizing the entire way we live. They're constantly upending society. Um, and they continue, conservation of the old modes of production in unaltered form was, on the contrary, the first condition of existence for all earlier industrial classes. So that is to say, prior to the modern bourgeoisie, um, previous class hierarchy was based on fixedness, stability, control, right? Stasis. I mean, this is a little bit outdated as a reading of history, but there is some truth to it. Um Anyway, continuing, constant revolutionizing of production, uninterrupted disturbance of all social conditions, everlasting uncertainty and agitation distinguish the bourgeois epoch from all earlier ones. All fixed, fast, frozen relations with their train of ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions are swept away. All new formed ones become antiquated before they can ossify. All that is solid melts into air, all that is holy is profaned, and man is at last compelled to face with sober senses his real conditions of life and his relations with his kind. Now, I think people, a lot of people have taken the wrong lesson from this. They read, well, capitalism is constantly upending society, melting into air everything that is solid, they're wiping away all the ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions— we should bring back the ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions. We need to go back. We need to freeze society in time because that's what capitalism is doing the opposite of that. Back to feudalism. Like that's the answer that they get from this. When in fact, Marx's point is that while this is really disruptive and difficult for a lot of people as they're going through it, that last part is really critical where it allows you to face with sober senses, your real conditions of life and your relations with your kind. It is the wiping away of idealistic ways of organizing society, like caste, in which capital creates the possibility for a working class that develops class consciousness and understands themselves as belonging to this class because capital gets rid of all the bullshit that divided them, right? Like, and I, I, 
just because it's something that is a tendency in capitalism doesn't make it bad, particularly when the tendency we're talking about is something that leads to the destruction of capitalism, right? The way that capital eventually treats all workers equally by equally exploiting them, it, it's, not, it's not like we have to give them credit like, as a moral good, like they're doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. No. But... Once that's the case, materially, then the then the sorry, then the working class is primed for class consciousness and revolution. But only once they're actually the same. You can't just wish all workers to be the same and living the same way and having the same class politics. You can't just say that that's the case and make it so. The reality is, working people live very different lives and have very different incentives according to those antiquated prejudices and opinions still. And as long as those have power and organize how society uh, allocates labor and resources, then they won't have class consciousness. You have to actually make a materially equal working class. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.